Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for, for music, music teachers. This is the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and today we're talking about a new approach to teaching scales. back beautiful teachers. So if you've been following me for a while this approach might not be brand new to you but to many of you it will be new or it will be something you've heard me rabbiting on about but you have yet to try. So today I'm going to be sharing a presentation that I gave as part of our Vibrant Music Teaching membership. This is also similar to the presentation I gave at the European Piano Teacher Association conference last summer. So you're going to hear most of the presentation. What I have cut out is the start where I'm just saying hello to people because you definitely don't want to listen to that on the podcast. And I've also cut out the ending and the questions afterwards. I cut out the last section simply because it includes more examples, more um, opportunities to try out improvisation. So you're going to hear two examples of that in the excerpt I'm sharing with you where I play a track and you can improvise along. But I've cut out the ending, which includes some more examples, because I know you might be listening to this on the go and you might not be able to play along. So I thought two was enough for this format. If you want to watch the full presentation, of course, it's inside the Vibrant Music Teaching membership. Just go to the training library if you're a member and you can see it there. And of course, look at it as well. But this is a great version to listen to when you're on the go, when you're out and about, when you're cleaning the kitchen. So I really hope you enjoy it. So this is my first question to you. What is the point of them? What are they for? Can anyone tell me? I would love to hear your thoughts on what scale, what the purpose of scales is. I remember being asked this question when I was around, I'm going to say 16, 17, 18, something like that. Anyway, I started teaching as a teenager and I was asked this question by a student, not in a rude way, but he asked me what they were for. I didn't have a really good answer. So the answer that's commonly given, that you may be about to write into the chat, is technique. Is that your go-to reason? But I actually question that. That's probably what I said to him at the time. Good answers coming in, but this is the most common one. Let me know if you've ever heard this before, at least the most traditionally common. But I don't think it's right. Because the thing that I've discovered, and this coming from someone who has hypermobility and like all my joints. You can play scales in with the most horrendous technique ever. They do not teach technique. There's nothing magical about them that helps you learn technique. 
they are technical exercises but you can play them with poor or good technique and if you're not taught technique before playing scales you're just going to reinforce your bad habits so that's not my favorite answer good to see none of you giving that in the chat but i would understand if you did because it's really a common common response so here, the, here are the benefits that i see of scales and some of these have come up already you can work through scales on developing even touch and tone, which is sometimes what people mean by the technique answer, but you do have to be specific in seeking that out. You can develop muscle memory, which is coming up in the chat in terms of they appear in repertoire, they come up in pieces, and therefore we already know the patterns, like Lisa says, learning patterning in songs. They, we already know the patterns when they come up in our pieces, and that makes our pieces easier to learn. They help teach us music theory as... Carrie and Nikki have been saying they're the building blocks of music. They teach us about harmony and key signatures and things like that. They help us with sight reading. It's easier to sight read music when we already know our scales and we understand those theoretical concepts. We have also been used to applying them to physical movement. They can teach us oral skills as well. No one has brought that up yet, but they definitely can help to develop our ears and get us used to hearing a key. And they can be used to create music, create our own music, which none of you really said, although Nikki said they are the building blocks of music. So maybe that's implied that you can use them to build music, right? You can build music with those blocks. So what else would you add? Do you think I've missed anything? Anne-Marie says can use to teach rhythm. And I'd say, yes, you can. But that's another one where, like technique, you could do that. But scales don't have any magical quality that helps us teach rhythm, in my view. So I don't think it's a specific benefit of scales, just something we should do with everything, right? So now let's talk about the methods that most teachers use to teach scales. How I think most scale instruction looks in most lessons, and certainly in my lessons growing up, and the lessons I taught when I first started teaching, is that we do C major, hand separately, focusing on the thumb under, like we pay special attention to that crossover, whatever you call it. Some people don't like the term thumb under, and I don't mean that your thumb is like tucking in a way that's bad technique, but I just mean that change in position, we focus on that. Then we do hands together, similar in country motion in C major. Then we do the rest of the white keys using the same basic method, separate, together, country motion. Then we battle through the black keys. And yes, it does feel like a battle, doesn't it, sometimes? And then we go over and over and over these and we increase the octaves and of course add the minors. So is that what your scale instruction looked like? Is that how you learned your scales in your own lessons or is it how you still teach them now? The thing about this method of teaching scales, I think, is that we need to examine how it prioritizes the benefits that we talked about earlier. So we have, we have covered definitely the muscle memory aspect by doing this because we're doing them over and over and we're focusing on lots of repetition of every scale. There's also more <laughs> focus on muscle memory. I think that is absolutely what this method focuses on. And then it can be used to teach even touch and tone. That will probably come into it. It also helps with sight reading. A bit of music theory if you talk about it, if you analyze it together. It doesn't teach oral skills. It doesn't teach creating music. I don't think either of those priorities become priorities, right? <laughs> They're just not factoring into the equation when we teach in that way. So when we think about our priorities in teaching, 
I like to think about the question of what do we stop to fix? What do you add as the next layer? And then which bits do you run out of time for? So in your teaching of scales, and your student is playing a scale, imagine they're playing a scale for you, what do you stop them to make them fix? A wrong note? A wrong finger? What will make you stop them in the middle or make them go back over it a second time if you don't stop them in the middle? And what do you add as the next layer? So what do you think of as the cherry on top, the icing on the cake, the thing you add once they know the fingering and the notes, if they ever get there? And then which bits of the scale puzzle do you run out of time for? What do you never end up getting to in terms of teaching scales? Nikki said fingering is what she would stop them for. For sure, I'd say that's pretty common. What about the next layer? Do we add dynamics? Do we think about the technique more at that stage? Do we focus on the even touch and tone as a sort of next layer after they've got the fingering covered? Tabitha said steady tempo is my biggest stop. That's interesting. Carrie said I used to stop them all the time for fingering, but now I stop them more if they hit wrong notes. That's really interesting as a change. I think these things reveal our own priorities. And they're often not aligned with what we say our priorities are. So when I started looking at this myself, I started thinking about what do I want to prioritize? What do I think should be the central goal of working on scales? What's the most important part to me? Underneath that, why am I doing them, right, is the real question. And if the why behind them is aligned in the right way with the tactics we're using to teach them, it'll all come together. Okay, so my reordered benefits of scales. Number one for me is music theory. And by the way, my order doesn't have to be your order. You can take a screen grab of this slide once I've finished putting them in my order and think about these later. Think about your priorities. But music theory is my number one. I think scales can teach us an enormous amount about the building blocks of music, how it all works. Creating music is my number two. I want my students to be able to create their own music using that information. Muscle memory is number three, still very important that they develop that muscle memory, but it doesn't come before the theory and the creativity for me. Oral skills come next for me, then sight reading, and then the even touch and tone, just because I feel I could teach that just as well through pieces. So maybe take a screenshot of that now or just note in the comments, what order would you put these things in? I thought a lot about this because there's arguments to be made for putting any of those things first. I think they're all valuable. I'm not saying I'm cutting any of them. I just wanted to reorder it in a way that made sense to me and what I want from scales specifically, not from lessons, but from scales. What do I want most? What's the least important to me? Let me know your thoughts on that. This order of priorities, the music theory, creating music, then muscle memory, etc., led me to focus on improvisation first and foremost. I would prefer to start with improvisation so that we can understand the music theory and create music with the scales right away, which leads to developing the muscle memory and the other things that we want later for me. So when I start with improvisation, students aren't stuck in these one octave patterns. And I think that was one of the keys for me in understanding the use of scales and their versatility was I really, through all this drilling I had done, I really thought that a scale went from, you know, A to A or C to C or whatever, and back down again. Over two octaves, over four octaves, doesn't matter, but it had to go to the tonic and back. 
And that's not how they come up in pieces. We need a more fluid understanding of them. And we need more fluid muscle memory than that if we're going to use them to sight read and to understand our pieces better. When we start with improvisation, students also understand what a scale is, which is a difficult thing to explain, but if they intuit it, it makes a lot of sense and it helps them understand music as a whole. Mistakes are laughed off easily because we're not focusing on fingering patterns and all these different elements at the start, we get to that later, we can easily just, you know, make a face at the F that we played instead of the F sharp and move on. And there's less of a high stakes environment, less of the hairdresser tense hands <laughs> under the cover. The purpose of scales is directly obvious to them. They get what you can do with scales because we're doing something with them. No, we're not learning them as isolated patterns. We're doing something. We're using them. And it's fun. It honestly is fun. And Nikki had a comment there, I think because that's not something I ever did, improvisation, I feel so uncomfortable teaching students to do it because I know how uncomfortable I feel with it, but that's not helpful at all. And you're not alone in that, which is why I wanted to read that out. That is absolutely true for so many of us, including me when I started doing this. It was something where I had to do it scared initially, to make it as simple as I could for myself, know that my student wouldn't know it was unusual, if they were a beginner student or, you know, a younger student. They're not going to know that, like, this is weird or whatever. So... There is an element of just jumping into the deep end, but doing it in a micro way. So you're doing just a little bit of improv and starting from there, whatever way is most comfortable for you to include it at first, and then you can expand it. So the way I work on this is a, now a course called the Circle of Fifths Odyssey, which is inside Vibrant Music Teaching Membership. The basic concept of it is that we start at the top of the circle of fifths at C, and we improvise our way all the way around it. So the first week we do just C and G. We do two keys on the first week because we want to get the idea of scales, and you can't do that with just one scale, especially when it's C, because it feels like it's just all the white keys, it doesn't really feel, it doesn't give that across that feeling of scales. So we improvise in C, and I'm talking about very basic patterns in the course, we have laid out patterns, so if you prefer to just read the accompaniment, you can. But it's me and my student improvising together always, and they can just play all the white keys. And then we can add one new sharp and play in G. And then on the second week, we're playing the first three keys. So notice we still started at C, so we play in C, we add one sharp, we add a new sharp when we, when we make D our home key. Then we go to A, then we go to E. And after that, you don't want it to take up so much of the lesson, maybe. So that's where we start to move it along. So we start at G and go forward. So we're still getting that um, impression of this sequence. But we don't go all the way from C every week because that would just be a lot. If you need to reduce this further, say if you have quite short lessons, you could do just three keys a week. And it literally can be 30 seconds to a minute of improv in each one. It doesn't have to be this extensive thing. But I'm doing all of this before I get to the stage where I want the student to learn the fingering and the patterns and practice them as scales, as we know scales. So week five, they're experiencing all of those. Week six, week seven, I think you get the picture now. We're going through like that. So talking of doing it scared, if you haven't improvised before, this is going to be your chance. If you are anywhere near a piano right now, I really want you to try this. If you are nowhere with near a piano, I would also like you to try it with your voice. Just try singing notes that feel like they fit in. And I want you to go into these 
as if you were a beginner. So even if you're a great improviser, do it like a new student would, or a student who's had like a couple of months of lessons. Do it like them, don't do it like you. Really make it sound like a student would sound. So if you are at the piano, you're just gonna play whatever you like on the white keys. I would stick in the top half of the piano. And if you're using your voice, just sing random notes. You can sing made up jazzy syllables if you like, or just la 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 is fine too. I'm going to play a little track here for you to play along with. Okay, so I know some of you will have done that and some of you won't have played along. We're going to go to G major now. So really, give it a go. Don't worry about embarrassing yourself. If you're in the room with lots of people, just hum a little bit. Um, but if you are at a piano, test it out. Try to behave like a student would. This is the closest thing I can give you to if we were in the same room and I would give you the full experience like I do it with students. Now, we're going to do it in G major. So play along, take part. Here we go. Okay, let me know if you tried that out. I'd love to hear how you got on with it. And if it was a bit scary for you. Yeah, it might be a bit scary, especially for students who have been learning a little while and haven't experienced any improv. But for those who are brand new to it, honestly, this isn't scary to most students. You will have the occasional more shy student who feels a bit unsure about it. But normally if I just play a few keys to show them in their register, they will join in. They realize like, oh, I can just do anything. It'll sound fine. And that's when they'll join in with me. So you heard the chord patterns there. Those are the ones we include in the Circle of Fifth Odyssey course. And they, they're they just written out for you. So if you're like a diehard reader, a bit like me, I like to have something in front of me. Now I'm more comfortable with playing a few chords. Like I don't read those in my lessons. But there would have been a time when I needed that in front of me. So those are provided in that course. Um, but you see how simple they are. We kept them ex extremely simple. And I actually think, yeah, you might be much fancier, right? You might be able to do all sorts of cool chordal accompaniments, but no matter what, I think you should keep it relatively uncluttered because that's what helps the students sound really great on top. You don't want to be getting in their way. This is not your solo time, right? <laughs> you just want to be providing a bit of support that makes them sound good. Like you said, I tried the C major, started following the harmonic progression, felt okay, but then started playing random notes and it felt so uncomfortable and scary. It does, it might do initially, but students quickly find their way. Like say they play an F at a point that it just really doesn't go, or especially if they play, say, a B, a leading tone. They hear that and they're a bit like, oh, that's not as great, but they just explore. 
And that's what it's about. And it's easier to do that when you are a beginner, but I commend you for doing it as a non-beginner. That's even harder. Nice. Lisa got to vocalize. That's awesome. Jeanette sounded better than expected. Nikki, you were laughing. Exactly, right? It's fun. My last point. It's fun. Okay, so let me tell you where we're going with this. You saw my progression in terms of the improv, but I'd like to clue you in on the fact that I'm not just going to teach them to improvise and leave it at that, because that wouldn't get to any of our other priorities. And they are still priorities. So for me, I have them improvise with free fingering. And we do that for at least a few weeks with a few of those keys. Often with a lot of the keys, but it depends how early I get to this in the student's studies. So I want them to ideally experience quite a few keys, and then we'll keep going with that progression while adding on standard scales with the fingerings when they're ready. Now, a quick note about when the student is ready. When the student is ready, to me, is when they can play legato without tension. If they cannot do that, I want them to do this improv for sure. I don't want them to learn scales when they're just going to practice them with tense hands. And I've seen that happen so much. So I, they're ready to learn scales in my book when they can do legato in some of their reading pieces or in other things that they're doing. And they can do that comfortably and they're doing it without tensing in some way or overcompensating in some part of their body. So when they are re ready for that, I get them to guess what fingering makes sense. They're part of this process. I used to learn scale fingerings like you just had to learn them off. They were like, oh, I don't know, like new vocabulary in a language. Like you just have to learn what it is. Sometimes you can find a more interesting path to vocab, but say a very foreign language. But they're not that. They're logical. If you try to play it with the wrong fingering, it doesn't make as much sense. So I want my student to guess what fingering makes sense. And we actually start now. So you saw I start with C with the improv. I don't start there anymore with scale fingering scales. I start at G flat. Sorry, I was thinking for a second. Do I normally do G flat or, B or D flat? It's G flat. So I start at G flat. And I do that because it's really easy to work out what that fingering should be. So if you can work out the pattern, I have them do that with one fingering, like check, okay, which notes do we need? Which are the white keys? Okay, we're going to remember that. Now, what makes sense? And they're automatically going to put their three fingers on the three black keys. And a lot of them will automatically put their thumb onto B. I mean, it just makes sense. What else are they going to do to get to the next group of black keys? So we start there. They guess what fingering makes sense. I help them as much as needed. Then I get them to write it out. And we write it on keyboard diagrams. So they're just empty pianos which are two octaves so that there's enough room to always write the scale. And we have these again in, in Vibrant Music Teaching. For any members watching, you can you can get the sheets where you can fill this in. But uh, I just have them write the finger numbers on the piano keys. That's their little help to remember it at home and also just to reinforce it right there. Then I assign them practice of the scale and also composing within that scale or using that scale. I'm not talking about some big, huge piece here. I'm talking about composing like a two to four bar melody. That's what I want. But it gives them some writing practice on the staff. It gets them to think about the scale in this fluid way, which is what I want. Then we practice with backing tracks. So this is our series called Scale Sync. Sync, again, in Vibrant Music Teaching membership. These backing tracks, and there's videos of them, of me playing along with the backing tracks so that they can watch if they need to. And they practice with the backing track. So that solves the problem of focusing on the steady tempo. Because if students are practicing with backing tracks, at least some of the time, 
they get used to the fact that we play scales steadily. We don't like randomly speed up when it's easy. You can't do that. It also brings them more into the musicality of the scale and again gets them to focus on these are musical things. They're building blocks of music. They're not just random patterns that you have to learn because you decide to take piano lessons. And all the time we're keeping on improvising. So let me show, know if any part of that trajectory doesn't quite make sense. I'm happy to clarify, but that's our basic flow. And again, the improv stage, improv only stage, how long that lasts in terms of what key we've gotten to before we start learning the fingering patterns is dependent on whether the student can play with good, nice legato yet or not. All right, I hope you loved that presentation and that it gave you, gave you some ideas for scales in your lessons. Again, if you want to watch it so you can see the diagrams and stuff, you can do that if you're a member of Vibrant Music Teaching. Just log into the membership and head to the training library or the video library as it used to be called. So yeah, I hope that gave you some ideas, but more than that, I hope you really use the ideas. If you have heard me talk about this before, but you haven't tried it, just try it with one student. Just do a little bit of scale improv and I promise you, you won't regret it. You're going to learn something from it, even if you don't go full on improv first as I do here in my studio. Now, I will be giving a more extended version of this presentation, including more info on technical drills in general and the next steps after the improvisation step at the MTNA conference. So that is in Reno, Nevada. I hope you can join me there because I would love to answer your questions in person, to see your smiling, hopefully smiling faces when the presentation is over. So yeah, if you're coming, make sure to catch my session there. That's it for this week. I'll see you back here next week. If you ever get overwhelmed by all the different teacher training options out there, Vibrant Music Teaching is the place for you. We nickname our members Flamingos because they're masters of balancing all of the things and making it all work in a way that isn't overwhelming. We have tools to help you do that inside Vibrant Music Teaching. So go to vmt.ninja and sign up today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching podcast. I hope you loved it. And I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July. And you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.